This is Rebecca Lowe, or Rebecca Lua, if you listen to Suboptimal Radio, and you are listening to Men in Blazers on the NBC Sports Network. It's unbelievable! Welcome to a Men in Blazers pod special. Our guest today is an American World Cup champion. Oh, I love saying that phrase. A two-time Olympic gold medalist and the back-to-back winner of the FIFA World Player of the Year Award. She's appeared for the United States 232 times at the senior level, scoring 96 goals, including that thunderous World Cup final hat-trick against Japan, which brought the trophy back into this nation's loving arms. But a story is not one of a modern athlete shooting straight to the top based on preternatural ability. It's one of work ethic, struggle, sacrifice, and overcoming nagging self-doubt. She chronicles the highs, lows, and ultimate glory in a fascinating biography, When Nobody Was Watching, My Hard-Fought Journey to the Top of the Soccer World. It's available now online and at all finer bookstores. We welcome to the pod, quite simply, one of the greatest footballers this country has ever produced. From your Houston dash and the great state of New Jersey, the one and only Carly Lloyd. Well done. Great introduction. <sighs> That's it. We're done. <laughs> <laughs> I can't say I'm so happy to have you here, Carly. I really am. My daughter's eight and she had to draw last week her family tree for school. She had me and my wife at the top, her parents. She had her three brothers and her drawn underneath. And to the left of her, she drew you, Carly Lloyd, inserted as a big sister, which is, I think that's, in her mind, it's an alternative fact, I think we now call them. But I know that she's one of millions of our listeners who feel that way. That's awesome. Those are the priceless moments that really gives me inspiration to play and get my story out and help younger generations to come. Just over two weeks ago, you were named the best FIFA Women's Player 2016 at an awards ceremony in Zurich for the second consecutive year. You won your first after your glorious World Cup winning campaign. You've dreamt about being the best in the world since making the US team in 2005. You told the coach when you arrived that was your life goal. Be honest, does it feel different the second time around? The first time around, I just didn't know what to expect. It was an overwhelming few days there. They have you running around, doing interviews. You're meeting all these former amazing players, current men's players. It's a pretty unbelievable event. I wanted it so bad, and it's just out of your control. You just don't know. So I think the second time around, I knew what to expect. I said to myself, whatever happens, happens. Just have to wait and see, and wanted to really enjoy the moment. So it was two amazing years of being able to be a part of that and an honor. You write in your book that when your name was called the first time, your instinct, your gut instinct, was to run around the awards theater as if you had, quote, just scored a goal. But you played it cool instead. I've got to say, you've got to charge onto that stage and pull a knee slide. <laughs> maybe next time, maybe. <laughs> For the three-peat, we're going to hold you to that. Cristiano won the male award, the lesser award. Watching the two of you pose for hundreds of photographers with their trophies, the flash guns popping. When you're in that situation with Ronaldo and everyone's looking, the two of you are making small talk. What do you chat about? I obviously said congratulations to him, shook his hand. We didn't chat too much. He didn't ask you um, about how he could improve his free kick taking <laughs> technique. <laughs> no, he did not. To your book, 
I really enjoyed reading your book, Carly Lloyd. It is a fascinating tale. The story of a young New Jersey girl falling in love with the game of soccer, dreaming of being the best player in the world, like millions, millions of girls around the globe. But you actually achieved that goal, thanks to an unparalleled work ethic and an orthodox coach and your ability to win the never-ending battle that I think thousands of our listeners will relate to, that between your competitive hunger and your incessant self-doubt. I want to talk to you about your early days, back when you were eight, nine years of age, on the Delran Dynamite. <laughs> your nickname, Peter. Yeah, pain in the... I guess we got to beep that out. You can say it. Pain in the ass. Oh, America um, is mortified, Carly. <laughs> that nickname came from my club team. I'm just a jokester. I'm pretty serious on the field. Many people say I'm intimidating. I have this air about me where they just get very scared around me. But off the field, I like to crack jokes. I like to play pranks and have fun with people. I think that's what it's all about. So I was a pain in the butt during my <laughs> club team days, and that's kind of the nickname that stuck. Oh, I'm interested in one of your early lessons, watching your first cousin, Jamie, who was older than you, star athlete in her own right. She had to rebound from a nine-month injury. And you're right that it taught you that talent is great, but it's the people who work hardest and are committed to make the most of their talent who succeed. And when I read that, I wondered, in your journey, have you met more talented players than you who you've leapt over because of your work ethic, your commitment? Absolutely. I've played with a number of players over the years, from youth team to ODP to regional teams, national teams, who, yes, did have better skill, maybe better talent than me, but none of them are playing anymore. And I'm still standing, I'm still playing. And so I've learned over the years that with hard work, with a huge mental toughness, that's why I'm able to reach the top. And are there players currently that are more talented and maybe more technical? Absolutely. But at the end of the day, you've got to score goals to win games, and championships don't lie. But it's never been a straight line of success for you. Like life itself, your career's been pockmarked by peaks, troughs. At the end of your junior year at Rutgers 2003, you were cut from the US under-21 team. I want to talk about the cycle of emotions you went through when you heard that. You said in the book, you hated the coach in the moment he cut you. You crushed your dreams. You thought about quitting the game. Was there honestly a moment in your life when you went home, you, Carly Lloyd, flung yourself on your bed and just shouted, I am done with soccer. Did we almost lose you for reals? Yeah, absolutely. I think he was the first honest coach that I ever had. He told it to me straight up and no other coach during my career had been honest with me. So for me, being a younger player, it was tough to be criticized and it was the first time I had to be criticized. I was a player who was talented, who loved the game but I was never told that you have to work hard every single day and you can't ever shut off. Coach James, James Galanis, is a character that looms large over your book. In the wake of that rejection, your father found, introduced you to him, a local coach. He went on to become your personal mentor. Would you call him that? Absolutely. A thick-legged Aussie. You turn to him out of desperation. You'd just been cut and he agrees to coach you, age 21. You tell him, and I love this, I love your confidence, even in a dark moment, you tell him your dream is to play for the full U.S. women's national team. And he puts you through a couple of sessions of assessment from which he concludes, I mean, even reading these words and looking you in the eye, it terrifies me. He says, good news, 
it's possible for you to achieve your goal. Bad news, according to him, James's words, you are mentally weak, quick to blame others, inclined to be lazy, and terribly unfit. <laughs> now, Carly, weaker people, me, would have retired immediately upon appearing that. <laughs> Who wants to hear that? But how did you process it? Because 21-year-olds, they're prone to reject that kind of immense, blunt personal criticism. No one wants to hear what they're not good at. But I was always hearing what I was good at. You're a rock star. You're the star. You're great. I went through my whole youth career feeling like I'm great and I don't have to do anything to improve. But James, he had a way about him at that moment. He said it in a way where I could just easily buy in. It was a gradual thing. It was, hey, if you work hard every single day, you do running every single day, we'll start off small and work our way up, you will become a machine. Essentially, that's what's happened. He's built me into a machine. It's taken 13, 14 years for us to get to this point. And the mental toughness, that didn't happen overnight. It wasn't, hey, you got to be mentally tough. you got to learn from your failures and be able to bounce back from injuries or a benching. It took circumstance after circumstance to be able to get through all these things. And I've just worked on all of my weaknesses and turned them into strengths. Most people in the world want to just work on their strengths. A machine, Robocop, Terminator, <laughs> Carly Lloyd. Well, I run enough to be a machine. <laughs> <laughs> Almost soon as he met you, I love this about James Galanis. He crafted a three-phase plan immediately for your development. Phase one, 2004-2008, get you entrenched in the U.S. women's national team. 2008-2012, make you a starter. And then phase three, 2012 to 2016, the year that we've just ended Make you, Carly Lloyd, the dominant and best player in the world. Uh, when I read that, I thought, bloody hell, I need a James Galanis three-phase plan in life. Everybody <laughs> needs one. But he didn't tell you about the plan when he first met you. He kept that a secret. When did he let you in on this? And how did you feel when you heard about it? Were you overawed? Were you excited? Were you motivated? When I first started working with him and on the national team in 2005, I didn't dream of any of this. Scoring in Olympic finals, World Cup finals, becoming the best player in the world. I just wanted to play on the women's national team. And then once I started training with him more and more, he kept telling me over and over again, you can become the best player in the world. And he didn't say it every training session, but he picked his moments of when to say it. And slowly but surely... He let me in on, this is phase one. This is what we're going to do. Six or seven years into it is when he really said to me, this could be a reality of you becoming the best player in the world. And I think for all these years, I had to believe it myself. After the 2012 Olympics, when I scored two goals in that final, I started to believe even more. And in 2015 in the World Cup, I finally believed that I could become the best player in the world. And now it's all about just having fun and continuing to get better, just enjoying the rest of my journey. The way you describe it, it makes it sound like you peak. And every time you peak, he points to another mountaintop. And then you go climb that and again, another peak. But the narrative in the book is so human. It tells a slightly different story because a recurrent theme is your battle with your inner voice your negative spirals of confidence. You write, I have a lifelong penchant 
for beating up on myself when I fall short. It's dangerously easy for me to hold on to mistakes, keeping them alive in an endless loop of self-criticism. You're so candid about the negative tape that plays in your head. You call it your thicket of self-criticism. How do you turn that thicket off? Teach us. Because I've got a feeling it might just be the secret to life, Carly. <laughs> I think it's James. I think having a go-to person like him in your corner to help you through every situation, I think what people don't realize is that not only was he navigating me through the training on a daily basis, but the mental part of the game, lots of phone calls, the advice that he gives me with him being a coach, he can put his coaching hat on, offer me help in that department. He also played professional soccer, so he knows that bit of it as well. Just being able to have somebody who can reassure you that if you keep going, if you keep focusing on that big, big goal at the end, and you just work hard every single day, eventually you're going to get closer and closer to that goal. And he's been a big part of my career. I think he's been the brains behind all of my success, and I've been the one putting in the work. And if either of us gave 90%, we wouldn't be here right now. I think that's been the secret sauce. You ultimately achieved the first phase of your goals in 2005 when you joined the U.S., women's national team, training alongside such gods of the game as Mia Hamm, Shannon McMillan, Tiffany Milbrook. On page two of your book, you write, in a dozen years on the US national team, I've been around enough drama queens to fill a royal palace. In the early days of your international career, you write about the clicks, the coach killing, and how things really didn't go smoothly for you at the outset. At times, no one would pass you the ball in training. You saw a culture of veterans freezing out rookies. And you write for a long period and viewed warily by some teammates, shunned by others. Can you explain what was going on and why that happened? It's the best of the best. It's a competitive environment. I don't look back and say, ah, it shouldn't have been like that. It was competitive back then. It's a different environment than when people come in now. But it made me strong. It made me tough. I had to really just focus on myself and performing and being prepared and being ready. But I speak to a lot of those players who I played with back in the day, and it was just all business. And that was the environment that was created, which I think made all of us strong and really the best team in the world. I loved your honesty in the book about this. You talk about how at the outset, quote, the inmates run the asylum. It was such a refreshingly real depiction of what it means to be part of an elite team and the struggles that exist within any team culture. And I, I honestly, when I read it, I wish that we fans had a clearer sense of those dynamics because it really makes your appreciation of what it takes to foster a winning team culture even keener. The national team is tough. Being in that environment with 20-some females, it's tough. Females are different than males. We're um, worse. They, <laughs> you guys are a little bit more high-maintenance in other areas, it's but... True. It's a tough environment, and that's kind of what was going on at the time. And over the years, things have changed. Right now, Jill is steering the ship and runs the show, and it's my job and Becky's job as captains to get everyone to buy in. So it's just different times, different errors, different ways of playing, but it made me who I am today and made me tough and strong. It's an amazing moment, a catalyst for change for you. Ultimately, you were confronted by Abby Wombach who told you, your place on the squad's in jeopardy. You essentially, and I'm only mildly paraphrasing, you have to do less texting and start connecting 
Can you tell us that story? Having Abby is one of the greatest of all time players coming up to you and I was shocked and it was really tough to swallow, hear those words. I think what a lot of people didn't realize is that when I came onto the team, I was all business. I wasn't there for this person to like me and that person to like me or the coach to like me. I was there to perform, work as hard as I can every single day. And it was hard for me to fit in because I may have not followed the crowd with certain things and I may have done things a little bit differently. But things have kind of come full circle and some of those former players have really respected who I am as a person. And they get me, they understand me, they know that I just wanted to be the best that I could be. I didn't want to go out and party with some of the other players. Some players thought that that was antisocial. I wanted to be able to perform that next day. And it's great to see some of those former players just having respect for who I am and really admire how I went about things. I mean, things did change for you with that Olympic win in 2008. You beat Brazil in the final, 1-0, thanks to your 96-minute goal in overtime. What I found fascinating was that within days of winning your first gold, James Galanis told you to forget it, told you that you had to get back to being an underdog. He wanted that old mentality. And I wondered, why do that? as opposed to adapt to your new status as a dominant, all-conquering winner? That was the first moment in my national team career where I had done something pretty spectacular, aside from some friendlies in the Algarve Cup prior to that. Being quite frank, I rode that a little bit and thought it was awesome, and my town threw me this huge parade, and I'm doing some interviews now. And I sort of went backwards a little bit. James's whole thinking throughout our journey together is he always wants to make me feel uncomfortable because if I'm going to feel uncomfortable, I'm eventually going to feel comfortable and be able to improve my game. So he wrote on this chalkboard down in his basement when we were working out that the Olympics are forgotten. And he really wanted me to forget about it because I had to look on to the next World Cup and the next Olympics and be able to prepare and train twice as hard at that point. Your career did continue to be one of challenge, failure, redemption. 2015 World Cup was a crowning moment, but your superlative performance was even more dramatic because of your failure at the 2011 World Cup, which preceded it. The US finished second, losing a penalty shootout to Japan. You took the second penalty. If I was to ask you, do you remember where that penalty ended up? Probably with a bunch of seagulls. <laughs> Had a lot of snow on it. Yeah, I, I, uh, that was a crushing moment for me. Does it still hit a nerve as you repicture it, skying over the bar to the right of center? It does here and there. I asked myself if I would have sunk that PK, would we have come out with a victory? I don't know because there are five shooters. If you constantly dwell on your failures or past experiences and you don't just try to learn from them, you're never going to get better. I remember sitting outside of our locker room talking to James on the phone and feeling embarrassed, saying all these people are going to think I choked. And he said to me, and I'll never forget this, you're not going to be defined by this moment. Your career will not be defined by this one very moment. And I remember saying to myself, I got to learn from this. I will never miss another PK after this miss in a World Cup final. Knock on wood, 
I have not missed one. I love how your mind works. Because <laughs> if James Galanis had called me, I would have said, it will, James. It will be defined <laughs> by this moment. I love how you instantly snap to the next goal, that next peak, that next mountain. The 2015 World Cup, that historic moment of national sporting glory. But amidst high expectation, in truth, the opening of that story was you struggling to find your rhythm in the group stage, the US team likewise, underperforming. But then you explode into life once you're given a freer role in the knockout stages. You score six goals in four huge games, including that hat-trick in the final. Before that game, your coach Galanis, he wrote you a letter to read, as he did before every big game at the World Cup, is a remarkable piece of writing. Could you give us a read? He always calls me Ms. Lloyd. So Ms. Lloyd, I've spent a lot of time reflecting, and the thing that sticks out the most to me is that you are once again going into this final as the best Carly Lloyd there ever was. You have broken barriers again and gone to a level that no one was expecting, and you are on the brink of shocking the world again. Because you are the only player that can take a game and own it. Because you are the most intimidating and feared player on the planet, and the Japanese know it. Time to make this yours. Time to show the world that there is only one Ms. Lloyd. There will be no denying you if the underdog shows up again and owns this game. Go make this yours. You deserve it. They're spark-up emails. They spark me up they big time. I want to know, when you read these, you're a bloody good footballer. You know you're a bloody good footballer. You've scored a lot of goals. But you're in your room on the day of the game. Can you describe for us the transformation you experience mentally when you read these letters? What they allow you to do that you couldn't do without them? He's been sending them my whole career. And they come at the best moments. They spark me up. They get me ready. This game is all mental. Those emails are a huge part of my career, and I read them over and over the day before a game, the day of the game, really gets me in that moment and gets me fired up. You also visualize. Yes, which has become a huge part of my game since the 2012 Olympics. Sitting in my room, visualizing three to four times a day. Which is what, visualizing? Put my headphones on with some light music, and I just close my eyes and I think of things that I'm going to do in the game. You literally picture yourself in color, charging forward. Getting in the box, good defending, being physical, emptying the tank. All these things that, yeah, that's a big (sighs) saying of James's. Elbowing Christy Sinclair. (laughs) (laughs) Keep it clean. I keep it clean. There you are, listeners. That was me, not Carly. Before the World Cup final, what did you visualize? I actually had a visualization prior to the World Cup, and... It sparked my memory when I was in the press conference after the final. Someone asked me, did you ever imagine scoring three goals in a World Cup final? When I was home, I was doing sprints. I had my headphones in. Sometimes I get lost in the moment. And I visualize scoring five goals in a World Cup final. You know, remar- Five goals. Five goals, yes. So at this press conference, it sparked my memory that I had this premonition, visualization four months before I left. I could have scored five, though. I missed a couple of opportunities. Is you, Carly, only telling me you were disappointed afterwards? <laughs> <laughs> well, I know James said, you could have scored five. Yeah. And I said, but I scored three. And he goes, oh, yeah, but you could have scored five. It's not the time, James. <laughs> not now. I've got to ask you about your second goal. 
the 54-yard lob, one of my favourite kind of goals, the one the likes of David Beckham, Xavier Alonso, Luis Suarez, score for fun, but normally in routes, never in finals. Take us back inside your head. You pick up that ball in the midfield and you decide to go Hail Mary. At that moment, three goals in, I've got two of them. I'm just in the zone. It's like I'm playing in the park with my friends, feeling good. And I remember getting the ball in the midfield. I took a touch. And if you watch it on certain footage and certain angle, you can actually see my eyes glance up to see where the keeper is. And at that particular moment is when I decided I was going to go for it. I took another touch and I launched it. And I knew when it came off my foot, it was the best, most well-struck ball I had hit. And I just stood there and watched. I saw the keeper backpedaling. She did touch it, but it still went in and it was an amazing moment. Does it happen quickly or does time completely slow down and it's just floating in the air like an Air Bud movie and you get to think about everything that's led to that moment? Delran Dynamite, Peter, I'm not going to play anymore. (laughs) James Galanis. Miss Lloyd, you can do it, Miss Lloyd. And then the ball just drops and goes in, or is it just, does it feel like it's 0.2 seconds? It feels like it's 0.2 seconds, <sighs> yeah. It comes off your foot, and oh, when the I rest ma- is history. When I make the movie, <laughs> it's going to be a 12-minute scene, <laughs> yeah, that goal. It will be. I, I did love, by the way, even that we learned in your book, you've been practicing with James Galanis for 13 years, that very scenario. We've done it all. And the more you prepare for something, the better off you're going to be going into it. So yes, I took midfield shots. You don't know when you're going to pull that out of your toolbox and be able to use it. Does he do goalkeeper training for you? You don't know when the goalkeeper is <laughs> going to be sent off. And you. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad I'm moving forward <laughs> with age and not backward. You win. Your dreams come true. But anyone who reads the book will know you're a perfectionist, Carly. You're very hard on yourself, incredibly hard on yourself. I just interviewed Pep Guardiola, who admitted that even when his team win, all he focuses on is the things they did wrong in victory, and it just keeps him up all night. Are you able to actually enjoy moments of victory, sincerely take pleasure in them? Or were you like, I didn't score five? What is wrong with me? Yeah, after the World Cup was a moment to enjoy, but it's very hard because it's like, okay, what's next? The Olympics are next. And you're constantly turning the page as a professional athlete. And for me, I'm constantly turning the page because I want to get better. It is difficult, but I think you don't get to the top if you don't see it that way. Only the best are able to continue to push on and get better. Last summer's 2016 Olympics, good for Americans in leotards and those named Michael Phelps. Less so for the U.S. women's national team. Injuries in the run-up to key players like Megan Rapinoe, the Zika debacle, the damp squib loss to Sweden in the quarterfinal and the sour uh, aftertaste at the end. First time the US has failed to reach a semi-final in a major tournament in their history, the women's team. Is there anything that could have been done differently with hindsight? When you look back, there's always things you can do better. Do I think things should have went differently or we should have done things differently? It's hard to say. And I think we did all the right things. We had the right personnel. We just didn't get it done. And it happens. And I think that it's really kind of set us up for this next cycle to work extra hard. Coaches, players, staff, everything. And we just really can self-reflect. And that's what I've done. 
to continue to get better and learn from that experience. There's a lot that does seem in flux about the women's game right now. There's an exodus of American talent to Europe. Alex Morgan starting in Lyon. Crystal Dunn going to Chelsea. Heather O'Reilly is a gooner. <laughs> Alex talked about a desire to move a game to the next level and experience elite coaching and elite training facilities. Does part of you wish the same for yourself? Yeah, you look at players like that who want to continue to evolve their game, and some may argue that they're not supporting the NWSL. But in all reality, this is the year to do it. Next year is 2018. Jill has said she's going to want us around more. Jill which, Ellis. Yes, which mostly means that players are going to have to play in the NWSL. We're going to have a busier schedule. So I think it's great. I think this is the year to make the most out of opportunities. I think it's great for the women's game. I think some of those clubs really are treating women's team like pure professionals. And I think that's what we need. I think we can always be better. I'm happy to see that the English league is getting better and the French league, Swedish Champions league. league football. It'd be awesome to be able to play in that. I mean, there is a lot of uncertainty around the women's game in America right now. There's the transformation of the NWSL. There's the players moving to Europe. There's the collective bargaining agreement between US soccer and the players, which is ongoing. It was just over a year ago your team was cruising down the Canyon of Heroes in a ticker tape parade seen around the world. Is it frustrating to you, after all you've given, after all the progress you've made, that it's come to this? No, I think we've got open dialogue with our federation and we want to make it work. We want it to be a win-win. We've come to a point where we have to continue to push on. Just like we're trying to make the NWSL better, we want to make the national team better as well. Not to say that we're not grateful for everything that they do, because without their support, it would be very, very hard. But I think it's just setting the precedent. It's giving all these other federations and countries of women more confidence to fight for their rights as well. All of the new players bursting through, Green Shoots, Lynn Williams, Mallory Pugh, when back healthy, Stanford's Andy Sullivan. What does it feel from your POV to be surrounded by this influx of young talent? Do you welcome the competition or in, or in quiet times off the field? Does it make you think about the end of your career? It's been great. Jill Ellis has really been able to put together her team, make it her team, go about it the way that she wants to. And you're seeing a lot of new players, players that have come out of the NWSL, which is great. And they just want to learn and they want to get better. And they're super coachable. I'm not threatened by anybody. I know there's a lot of talent coming through. I'm in competition with no one but myself. And that's how I've approached it my entire career. That's what's helped me. So yes, I am coming to the end of my career. Reality is I'm getting a little bit older. But at the same time, there's still loads of things that I want to get better at. And so I think that's extra motivation for my training to know that here's a lot of things that I can continue to get better at while having some of these amazing younger players who want to learn from me, I can help out. So it's been great. It's been kind of a breath of fresh air to have some new faces in. Final question for you, Carly. Central tension of your book, that of self-doubt, negative spirals of confidence, of beating yourself up mentally. One thing I do need to know, does the winning, the gold medals, the winning goals, the World Cup, the Bolonda Oars, the accolades, does that heal the doubt or does it never go away? 
my journey has been loaded with ups and downs. All of those moments that you just picked out, of course, those are the obvious amazing moments of my career. But I really look at the failures that I've had because you learn more from your failures than you do from your success. And the failures keeps me motivated is what keeps driving me to want to just separate myself and want to get to the top. And it's been some unbelievable times. Would I say it's been easy? Not 1% of it's been easy. But I'd rather have a hard road that's 99% hard and difficult than, you know, something that was 99% easy. Carly Lloyd, thank you. Thank you. You're a remarkable human being, not just as an elite athlete, peerless in your sport, but there's a role model of it, both for your achievements, but also your hard work message, which I think is a human inspiration. Your book, Carly Lloyd, When Nobody Was Watching, My Hard Fought Journey to the Top of the Soccer World. That's Carly's hard-fought journey, not mine. It's available now. Buy it. Read it. I hope it makes you think as much as it did me. And for more Carly, the She Believes Cup kicks off March 1st to the 7th. I already have my tickets. And if you can't wait till then, and I'm warning you, be careful with this one. Tune into the Men in Blazers show this Wednesday on NBCSN. Carly joins us for our post-transfer deadline belated Chinese New Year special. Courage.